Welcome to Peace, Love, and Soup, bringing you a significant soup each month along with culture, cooking, and conversation. With Brian Delaney and Tave Fashe Drake. Bienvenidos a Episodio 10 de Paz, Amor y Sopa. Dios mío, Episodio 10. Sí, sí. Hola, Tave. Hola, Benito. Well, this month we are celebrating Día de los Muertos, Day of the Dead, with heartfelt personal stories, our own spin on calaveras, which are epitaphs for the dearly departed. Written and read by our devoted listeners. We'll be hearing their pieces interspersed throughout the show, Right now, let's take a moment to applaud them by name. Michelle, David C., Rachel, and Blair. April, Daniel, Nancy, and Larry. Patsy, David S., Ilsa, and Cindy. Muchos gracias a todos por sus palabras bonitas. You know, each of them have such unique voices. They do. And have so lovingly honored those that they have lost. And what about the soup this month? Oh, la sopa este mes es caldo de res. A classic Mexican beef and vegetable soup, directly translated as broth of beef. You know, Brian, they say in South America that a good broth will raise the dead. Well, speaking of raising the dead, though not literally, it's the return of Baker Dan. (gasps) Te quiero, Baker Dan. (laughs) Sounds like Baker Dan's got a fan. Yes, he'll be preparing pan de muerto, bread of the dead, a decorated sweet roll served on this Mexican holiday. Mm. Some of them are even shaped like little corpses. Really? Yes, and Brian. What? I think we should dedicate this episode to the spirits. Wait, what? What? Yeah, I think we should call this episode a soup for the spirits. Ah, I think that's a wonderful idea. But Tave. What? Why are we whispering? Well, uh, I... I don't know. I just thought. <laughs> I thought we were trying to raise the dead. Claro, <laughs> <laughs> claro. All right. Well, we got a little carried away this month in anticipation of Dia de los Muertos. We sure did. In fact, it's a super-sized episode. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. Pun intended. <laughs> so build your altar. Grab your hankies. Preheat your ovens. And join us for episode 10 of Paz, Amor y Sopa, a soup for the spirits. Vamos. Vamos. This is Michelle Brian, and I wrote this story based on a dream that my mom visited me in. It's called Love, Light, and Bubbles. I'm excited to share it. The phone rang. I was greeted with, Hi, Michelle. It's mom. My heart raced and melted. It had been six months since I heard her voice. I asked a bunch of questions. How are you? Where are you? Is it beautiful? Are you happy? I miss you. My mom replied, I'm fine. I'm happy. I miss you too. And I love you so much. Tears streamed down my cheeks. Look out the window, she says. I look outside and see two giant iridescent circles, like bubbles. They're floating around and playing with one another. Is that you? Who's with you? My mom says, yes, it is her. And she's with a friend. I smile as I feel their love and light. She tells me that she is here with me always. 
I am comforted and so deeply sad at the same time. I ask if she'll call me again, and she assures me that yes, she will. We say I love you and hang up. I immediately wake up in a daze and write down every detail. I imprint this dream in my heart so that I'll never forget it. The next morning, I get a phone call from Keith. He and his wife, Ellen, became friends of ours that year through a brain cancer support group. They came to my mom's memorial and kept in touch with me after her passing. Keith was calling with bad news. Ellen had passed away during the night. Electricity seared through me as I realized that the bubble friend with my mom was Ellen. The visit wasn't solely meant for me. It was so that I could share this with Keith to comfort him. I described all of the details of this magical moment, which were still so alive in my mind, body, and soul. I shared that it was meant as a message for him, that Ellen was okay, and my mom was taking care of her. They were love, light, and bubbles. He cried and thanked me. It was a very touching moment to be able to share that with him, and I was so grateful that this gift was given to me. Fifteen years has gone by, and I haven't received another call. But I know that when she can, my mom will show her shiny, bubbly smile again. I love you, Mom. History of Day of the Dead. Bueno. Dia de los Muertos is celebrated between October 31st and November 2nd. On this holiday, Mexicans remember and honor their deceased loved ones. It's not a gloomy or a morbid occasion, but rather colorful celebration of those who've passed on. The belief behind Day of the Dead is that spirits return to the world of the living for one day each year to be with their families. In ancient times, the dead were buried near family homes so that the living could maintain close ties to their ancestors, who were believed to still exist, but on a different plane. Now that the dead are buried in cemeteries, their graves are decorated because it's believed that the dead return there first. In some villages, a path of flower petals directs the spirits from the graveyard back to the family home. Often it's customary to spend the entire night dancing, drinking, eating, and celebrating at the graves. With the arrival of Spaniards and Catholicism, All Souls and All Saints Day practices were incorporated. It is said that the spirits of babies and children arrive on October 31st at midnight and spend the entire day of November 1st with their families. This day is called Dia de los Angelitos, while adult spirits return the following day on Dia de los Muertos. Mexicans traditionally construct elaborate altars in their homes called ofrendas to welcome the spirits. Ofrendas are covered with sugar skulls and cempasuchil, or marigolds, that lend a fresh fragrance to the air. They also contain toys for dead children and bottles of tequila or pulque for dead adults, as well as special foods they once enjoyed, including candied pumpkins and pan de muerto. It is believed that the spirits consume the essence and the aroma of the food and drink that they are offered. When the spirits depart, the living eat and share the offerings with family and friends. Dia de los Muertos and Halloween have some common features, but they are distinctly different holidays. Most significantly, Halloween stems from the idea that ghosts are malevolent. Therefore, children are disguised so they won't be harmed. Whereas on Day of the Dead, spirits are joyfully welcomed back to their community for the same brief reunion each year.
Hi, I'm Daniel Elder, and this is A Fragment of Air. The day is long. Margaret naps. When she can, she spends time with us one by one. And here's the nightmare, the thing that keeps me up at night when I think about her. I can barely remember a goddamn thing we said to one another. I have to breathe, and I have to remember. I walk into the den, and I shut the door behind me. Margaret sits up on her hospice bed, feet dangling like a six-year-old sitting in an adult's chair, shoulders hunched, torso slumped slightly forward. She takes a sip of water and sets the glass down. I move to sit on the bed and fight every urge to sit a ways away from her dying body and sit right up against her instead. We've never been this close before. I think we've hugged maybe once, twice in all the years we've known one another. I put my arm around her, feel my hand slide across the insistent vertebrae of her spine, curl around her waist and hold her to me. I take her hand in my hand, skin like paper. She tells me she'll be back soon. She tells me not to worry. Later, after I have left her room with quiet composure, only to erupt into tears out behind the house, after I have calmed down once again, I go to get something from the car. A phone charger, probably. Something mundane. Walking back, my breath plumes in the air, lit by the light from the porch, and I glance over to the window of the room where Margaret's hospice bed is set up. She is alone, asleep, her body turned toward the window, her mouth wide open in an embarrassingly human pose, her face fixed in the most intimate snarl. She's snoring. I walk softly toward the window. I watch her breathe, her weak breath fogging the glass even as my own breath plumes out rich and bright in front of me, a furnace. I reach out a hand. I want to touch the window. I see the doorknob turn behind her, the door open, the hospice nurse. I step back into the winter night, then go back inside the house through the front door, back into the long goodbye. This is Rachel Siegel, and my story is called Herb's Hunger Strike for Peace. As my father lie on his deathbed, we all gather around. We treat him to the family favorite folk songs, the ones he played on guitar for us as children. My tone-deaf singing might kill him first if the lack of nourishment doesn't get him soon. The fox went out on a chilly night, prayed the moon to give him light. Herbie, in his childish, playful manner, might throw in one of his famous kazoo solos. Now we just watch as he withers away. He stopped eating 12 days earlier. His Parkinson's dementia caught up with him. He's no longer able to swallow, so we wait for him to starve to death. Sounds grim, but it isn't as bad as it seems. It's quite peaceful. All of us together, focusing our love on him, sharing warm and funny memories. Remember that Thanksgiving the VW van broke down in Death Valley? Apparently, starvation can be rather painless, and thankfully, the hospice team is keeping him comfortable, clean, and calm. But damn, a person can live a long time without food. He really enjoyed eating, too, so this seems like a cruel trick of the disease. He loved Mexican food, the way it filled the plate. Beans, rice, sauces, cheese, pork, all touching, everything connected and gooey. 
he was raised kosher, so when he moved to California in the 50s for college and found this delicious, unsanctioned meshing of dairy and meat, he was hooked. In the last few days, he barely took in any water, just what he could suck in from a wet washcloth. The old guy is strong for a 90-pound emaciated skeleton. He was always strong, strong-willed, full of life, and the life of the party. He loved to dance and had a wonderful sense of humor. He could be a poster child for the Day of the Dead. By this time, his speech is completely gone, and his alertness is periodic. Mostly, he's in a gentle slumber. Dad was active in the Peace and Freedom Party, believing deeply in social justice. So as the days pass, I tease him, joking that he looks just like Gandhi, laying stripped down in a white diaper. At that point, I catch a glimmer in his eyes. Dad, you're doing a fantastic job going out with a hunger strike for peace. Oh, we're pulling up to Serrano's now. Serrano's Taqueria, and it's on a rainy day in fall. It's going to be a perfect day for our soup for the spirits. In a torrential rainstorm. My goodness, it's just really coming down all of a sudden. I'm going to take that as a good sign from the spirits. I think it is. So it's right here inside this little market. I can't wait to meet Doris and David. Oh, wait, David won't be here today. Is that correct? That's right. He's down in Mexico right now. Hola, soy Doris. Soy Doris Serrano. Bienvenidos a mi restaurant Serrano's Taqueria. Hola. So how do you say, como se dice, caldo de res or caldo de rey? Caldo de res. She rolls her R better than she me. Res. Uh, servimos caldo de res en sábado y lunes. Saturday and Monday. Why Saturday and Monday only? Because uh, my customers come for caldo de res only on the weekends. I heard traditionally, even in Central America and North America, families, they only make it on like Saturday. Yeah. Do you eat it year round or only certain seasons? No in summer because it's too much hot. And so we were wondering, like, what do you put in caldo de res? Caldo de res have meat, uh, vegetables. What vegetables do you use? Zanahorias, calabacitas, elotes, chayote, papas, um, cebolla. So that was carrots, zucchini, corn on the cob. Chayote is a type of squash. Papas are potatoes. And the last one, what was it? Cebolla. Cebolla? Cebolla is onions? Y ajo. Y ajo. Ajo. Which ajo? Garlic. Oh, and garlic. That's a new one for me. And then the meat is beef. Beef. So the caldo de res is not spicy. Not spicy. Okay, so Brian and I would love to order one bowl of your delicious caldo de res and a sope. One or two? Dos. Por favor. So how long does it take to cook? Um, two uh, horas. And do you make it all at once or do you do the beef first and then the vegetables? 
beef fruit um, because in the base tomorrow is only 10 or 15 minutes. Okay. All right. We'll let these people order and then maybe we'll ask you just a few questions. Hi. Welcome. Do you get your lunch here every day? Uh, basically every time I work here. It's worth it, I think. It, the price is good, like good quality food. Are you getting caldo de res today? Oh, yes. She said she had that and to try it. I was like, okay, so I'm excited. So we're interviewing people like, how long have you been coming here? Oh, well, I've been coming here ever since the place opened up. I lived in the neighborhood for a while and I come here like almost every weekend because, I mean, I love the food, great cooks, it's delicious. What do you normally like to order? I usually order the carne asada burrito, but uh, I'm trying something new today. I don't know the name of that soup, but I'm getting that now. The caldo de res? Oh, yeah. good. <laughs> wow. Espero les guste. Gracias, gracias. Que bonita. Oh, it is. It's muy bonita. It looks delicioso. All right. And then you said not spicy. So you would only put in spicy or salsa or peppers yes. afterwards. Yes. Es salsa serranos. Solamente la encuentran en serranos taquería. Porque es exclusivamente de serranos taquería. Mm, I can't wait to add that special secret sauce to our caldedores and sopas. Serranos is your last name? Yes. Serrano means pepper. Es por eso que hago la salsa serranos. Ah, you understand now. Well, of course. She added some garnishes. Es jalapeños, uh, cebolla, limón and cilantro. Perfect. And then people can put on whatever they like to their soup. Para da un mejor sabor. When did you first make caldo de res? How old were you? Um, maybe when I have uh, 12 years old. Who taught you how to make caldo de res? My mom. Do your brothers know how to make it? Yeah, my brothers, my sisters, and me. Do you have any special secret ingredients you use in yours? Yes. <laughs> Which you're not sharing. Yeah. <laughs> smart girl, smart girl. Where's your family from? My family is in Honduras. Uh, only my son lives with me. And in Honduras, Dia de los Muertos is celebrated like in Mexico? Yes. Do people serve caldo de res for Dia de los Muertos? No. Pozole, uh, menudo. I had their menudo here. It's delicious. It's the real thing. Yeah. It's a little spicy. When did your store open? When? Um, seven months ago. Congratulations. Thank you. How was business? Good. Is this your first restaurant? First yeah. taqueria? Yeah, the first. So I first came to Serranos with Ivan and Carmen, who do Radio Tonale. That's when you made me the menudo. Um, but we came down also because David, your business partner, is Yvonne's brother. How do you and David know each other? Yeah, amigo for uh, maybe 12 years. 12 años, that's a long time. Does David cook with you? I make everything. He only eats. <laughs> I want his job. Well, you're a good team because you're putting out a brilliant product. Yum. What's your name? Oh, I'm Val. Nice to meet you. I'm Brian. And Tabe. All right. Well, that's an interesting name. Sharing our soup here today at Serrano's. Mmm. That is... Oh, yeah. I just got to add some spice to it. That's what I would do. So Doris was just saying this salsa here, the Serrano's salsa, mm -hmm. that's her family's special salsa, and you can only get it here. Wow. Oh, that is cool. Yeah.
Oh yeah, you gotta add the lime, right? Mm. It is delicious. It's so pretty, it's so chunky and hearty. Yeah, it's like super satisfying. It is, and that sauce, Serrano special, it definitely adds a very delicious kick to it. Yeah, she won't tell us the ingredients to her sauce, but. Ah, family secret. <laughs> it's all good, it's all good. We'll have to come back and, and try it again and again and again. That beef just is falling apart, just like an old fashioned pot roast. And the broth for being, you know, it's, it's why did you start tearing up? Just because they were so good. I mean, it was like real homemade. Tears of joy. It really was. Yeah. I was moved to tears. <laughs> well, this is our soup for the spirit, so. That's right. Well, that's pretty cool. All right. Nice. Thanks for your time, Val. Oh, it's so sad. We need to leave now. I'm going to start crying you again. Are, you are. You're tearing up. Is there something spicy in the soup? No, it's just so delicious. And it, you can feel the love that was put into the soup when it was made. I agree with you a thousand percent. So you can come down here to Serrano's on 8409 Southeast 45th Street in Southeast Portland. It's just a little bit north of Johnson Creek Boulevard. And order everything off the menu. Mm-hmm. Muchas gracias por la sopa y los sopes. Muchas gracias por la sopa y los sopes. And for the Spanish lesson. <laughs> well, again, thank you, Doris. And if you'd like to make this delicioso soup for the spirits, please go to our blog at kboo.fm forward slash peace, love, and soup. Mucho gusto, Portland, Oregon. Paz, amor, y sopa. I'm Ilsa, and a couple months ago, my childhood friend Ellie Landis passed away, and this piece is about her, titled Ellie. Ellie passed away the other day. She'd been battling brain cancer for two years. I can still feel that little ball of dread drop dead in my gut. Ellie Landis was a piece of my childhood. I speak of all my childhood in the past tense now. I'm 17. It never felt so far away, though, as the day that Ellie died. The Landis family were the first neighbors we'd gotten to know upon moving to our house on 55th and Salmon Street. Ellie and I and our little siblings played tag in endless circles around the Landis house. They had this play structure in their backyard that was massive to me as a kid, and there were copious amounts of popsicles in the summer. I remember when Ellie gave up Binky's the Binky Fairy, a creature I was wholly unfamiliar with until that moment, gifted her an entire cat as a reward. Whenever I was over, I was in a state of constant amazement. I cried when I first read her obituary in the paper. Anyone can see it online on the Oregonian website. My favorite part is the first thing she asked for after she received her cancer diagnosis. She wanted to go to Powell's to pick out some books. My whole body filled up with tears. Ellie was gone. Here was a list of books she had loved, and I loved books too, and she had loved socks, and I loved socks, and she was a part of me as much as anyone I'd ever met, and how odd that we hadn't really stayed friends as we grew older. We never got to have that sleepover we fought so hard for as little kids, and she was gone? 
It was as if a great door had suddenly closed on all of those memories. Never before had they all been so clearly part of the past. A massive bolt slid into place. I wasn't a popsicle-eating, barefoot-tag-playing kid anymore. My girlfriend has a gene that makes her extremely susceptible to cancer. My little brother's best friend had just lost his older sister. Do 13-year-old boys even talk about that kind of stuff? On Easter, I traced my familiar borrow-a-cup-of-sugar path to the Landis house. This time, I wasn't borrowing. I was delivering a lilac plant. This piece is called The Scourge. My name is Larry Deal, and this is about my cat Truman. Uh, he passed away earlier this year of cancer. I take out the blanket and you don't notice. I shuffle through a cluttered house, arranging, rearranging, setting a scene, imagining how it'll be, wondering what you know where you go when you come in and out. You in the corner with your hunger sounds and weak purr and soft weirdness, with your dehydrated cat breath the insouciant cancer host. A Nat King Cole record skips and I change it. I pull another from its sleeve, swipe a cobweb off the mantle, blow my nose, scrub the sink, mind the clock. I sweep scout ants and fur and dirt and chewed nails into a pile. I eye the bourbon knowing it won't work, gnaw the insides of my cheeks with dull teeth, coin-flavored trepidation. This week, a congress of crows has conquered our yard, their voices as loud and ugly as yours ever was. They terrorize hummingbirds and loot their hatchlings. I remind myself I don't believe in signs. I scrub the molding. This thing, this insect of anxiety, vibrates and pulses in my sternum, a sickening flutter. This thing that started 10 years ago when we watched Pam fade in and out and the milligrams go up and up. This witnessing, Otis bloating and swelling this crystal ball, this disquietude. And now you, now Truman. I mop the floor, I mind the mess, I make the space presentable. I scrub the toilet, make the bed, I sweep the porch. I order the liquor cabinet like order over there ever mattered. She knocks at 4.02, they'd said between four and five. Her promptness a cruelty as she trudges on stage with her compact pouch of needles, with her soft eyes and Jamie Lee Curtis hair. You greet her with your furry face and purple eyes and hideous, beauteous voice. A final welcome. Two injections, she says. The first, just a sedative. He may jump. But you're so weak, you don't need the second. Last night, I read words about you before a group of strangers. Tomorrow, I'll take out the blanket and you won't be here to notice. You'll be a star man and we'll be here. Here with so much to quail at and photos of you to dust. You're listening to Peace, Love, and Soup. Hi, I'm Patsy Kohlberg. My mother died in 2012 at the age of 96. And this is what I remember about mom. How we could never pick out clothes for each other that either of us was willing to wear. How often I pulled the wool over her eyes and how often I only thought that I had. 
how she turned 90 before either of us got up the nerve to say, I love you. How much she lived in dad's shadow and how much she glowed of her own light within that shade. How she would let me trim her toenails, corns, and calluses during her waning years and how much I liked to do it. How much she hated to cry, so she just never did. How beautiful she became in extreme old age. How the only romantic advice she ever gave me was to find a man who was a little bit smarter than I was. How I figured out at age 20 that she was smarter than dad, or at least a more serious and successful student. How astonished I was the first and only time she ever spanked me. How mad I was when I turned 12 and she would no longer let me play tackle football with the neighborhood boys. She said I would get hurt. I was just as big and fast and strong as any of those boys, so I knew that wasn't it. How when war broke out between her heart and her mind, her heart always won. How I was not quite the daughter she wanted. I was not frilly enough, but she decided to go with it anyway. How gamely every summer she let Dad drag her around on water skis behind our speedboat, even though she didn't enjoy it much. How corny her sense of humor was until later in life when she developed a taste for old lady sex jokes. How seriously we both took it when she bought me my first training bra. How she told me she was never afraid of dying until she had children. How when I agonized over the fatness of my teenage thighs, she insisted I had a better figure than any of those other girls. How she always mothered me more than I wanted and never mothered me as much as I wanted. How the last thing I learned from her was all about the messiness of what we call devotion. Sabula is a medicinal plant that grows wild in tropical climates all over the world, as well as the name of Cumbia, Latin, World, R&B-inspired music, and visual art project by guitarist Fabiola Reina, vocalist Brisa Gonzalez, and percussionist extraordinaire Papi Fimbres. They're a young Portland trio, and we thank them for their music this month, S-A-V-I-L-A. Check them out at Holocene on November 2nd for their Dia de los Muertos show, along with other Latin music here in Portland. Hello, this poem is called Bill. After my older brother, who died in 2006, my name is David Sabin. As he became an old man, nothing at all he said was true. Not that it was a lie, exactly. He was trying to give the proportion of myth to his life, something more in keeping with his dreams. He felt, I feel, he'd lived an unlived life. His generosity and loyalty struck him as incidental to a larger role, one he was meant to play, but somehow was never cast in. Those of us who loved him did not understand this at the time. I was bored with him before he died. I mistook courage for self-aggrandizement. 
Since then, I've traveled his road almost exactly as I've aged. I loved him when I was young. I idolized him once. He was strong and brave and loved his family, warts and all. In my middle age, when he was old, I did not see him clear enough. I saw a good-hearted man, a solid family guy, and a small-time braggart. All of that was true, I guess. What is also true is he protected me when I needed it throughout my life. He doesn't haunt me like Jim does. I doubt he even needs my love. When he died, though, I could not believe the mythic dimensions of our loss. The role he plays now in our hearts is the one he always hoped to play while he lived. I'm Nancy Kassam, and I'm going to be reading a piece called Bringing Dad Home. My dad passed away two years ago, and um, this is about the last week of his life. We brought dad home after the doctor said no surgeon would touch him. He was too weak, too thin at six feet tall, weighing in at 120 pounds. I was the one who took the phone call in the hallway outside dad's room at the hospital. The doctor didn't even come to see us. He told me over the hospital phone, in the hallway. I had to tell my sister. We leaned against the outside of Dad's wall. I've never seen her cry, but when I told her, she came into me and sobbed. We stayed at Mom and Dad's house. We stayed there with the mice and the fruit flies, my sister and I. Mom was in rehab. She fell after Dad went into the hospital and her friends found her lying on the bedroom floor. She fell, she told the doctors, at the same hospital where Dad stayed on the floor below her. She fell when she took too many Ambien and drank too many mini bottles of Smirnoff. My mother went to rehab to recover. My father was going home to die. My sister and I waited all day for hospice to bring Dad home. 6.30 at night, they arrived, two women. I was impressed, but then they lifted Dad like a sack from the gurney and swung him onto the hospital bed in our family room. It was still ours, even though my sister and I didn't live there anymore. They dropped him like a sack of old man, like he was any old man. He was not any old man. He was my father. He had a master's degree in social work from Columbia University. He was brave. He listened. He quietly believed in God. I'd sleep on the family room couch and wake up throughout the night to make sure the oxygen tubes were in his nose. He often pulled them out. Yes, he was dying, but I still wanted to make sure he could breathe. He'd lie there with his soft eyes open. I wanted him to go. I wanted him to stay. Once, I went to his bed to place the tubes again around his ears and into his nose when he put his hand on top of mine. We were saying our goodbyes. There were no more words.
you know, pan de muerto, or bread of the dead, is a sugar-dusted orange-flavored sweetbread. It is baked either in the shape of a corpse or a dome that is topped with little knobby parts to symbolize bones and tears. The bones are represented in a circle to portray the circle of life, and the teardrops on the bread represent goddess Shamala's tears for the living. Did you know those with a distinctive talent for writing create short poems called calaveras or calaveritas? which are epitaphs of dead friends describing interesting habits, attitudes, or funny anecdotes. Did you know Mexican-style Day of the Dead celebrations occur around the globe, including in the United States, South America, Australia, Indonesia, and the Czech Republic, to name just a few. In fact, most countries have their own unique holiday to celebrate the dead. Did you know... In some African cultures, visits to ancestors' graves, the leaving of food and gifts, and the asking of protection from them serve as important parts of traditional rituals. One such ritual is held just before the start of the hunting season. Did you know? In Goa, India, the Alamacho Dis, Dead Souls, is commemorated on November 2nd, when forgotten souls are remembered and spiritual charity is done through prayer for the deceased family. A beggar's lunch is held in which food is given to the poor and downtrodden of the village, and they're treated with dignity and respect. Did you know? During the Nepal holiday of Gaigatra, Hindus celebrate both their recently departed loved ones and the sacred cow. It is believed that the cow guides the spirits of the dead into the afterlife. During this festival, an actual or symbolic cow is used to lead people dressed in costumes, reminiscent of Halloween, through the streets in joyous procession. This is Blair Fell, and this piece is called You Like My Dead Dog and It Helped. Uh, an expanded version of it's on the Huffington Post. You can also see a picture of my dog Sophie if you Google my name, Blair Fell, and the title of the piece. One April day a few years ago, I walked into my apartment after work and called my sleeping dog. Sophie lifted her head slightly from the carpet and then died. Sophie was in the last stages of congestive heart failure, so her passing was not a surprise. In fact, she did the kindest favor by not only taking care of it herself, but waiting for me to get home to say goodbye. I immediately wept really hard. You know, the kind of weeping you do when you're a kid, the gasping, shaking, bawling, snot running down your nose kind. Then, being a writer and an internet narcissist, I posted a short obituary about Sophie and her incredibly adorable photo on Facebook. In the first five hours, the photo and story of Sophie's life generated about 800 likes and 200 comments. I was surprised at how many of my friends and friends of friends had lost a pet over the last year. Suddenly, my solitary grief turned into something bigger. I was crowdsourcing my healing. But then something strange happened. I started noticing, and I need to remind you, my name is Blair, but the comments on my Facebook page were, Michael, I feel terrible, but she was your best friend and she loved you. Or Lisa, I didn't even know you had a dog. I'm so sorry. That's right. People were sharing Sophie's photo and story on their own wall and their friends were consoling them, not me. I was like, hey, that's my dog. That's my heartbreak. But I didn't because many of them were offering me or Raphael or Myrna words of wisdom and how reading about Sophie opened up something inside of them. 
my loss became their loss. Everybody hurts when their pup dies. And by sharing, we all were helping everyone be a bit more human, connected. After days of this, I noticed some people said they were never able to get over the loss of their pets, that their hurt lingered for years. But that's not my story. Instead of a deep depression, I felt a tear-inducing gratitude that I had 10 and a half years with that mischievous yellow mutt who taught me how to live and love. After that, Sophie, the bodhisattva, decided it was mission accomplished and time to transcend. I will love my dog forever. She made me a better man. On top of all that, via the story of her life and death and adorable face, she left this final gift of helping me and so many friends and strangers on Facebook. 1,548 likes, 797 comments at last count. She let all of us know we aren't alone. None of us are alone. Social media might be destroying the world, but not in this case. Thanks, Mark Zuckerberg. Thanks, Sophie. Thanks, Internet. Arf. Grr. Click. This is my mom's story of the morning my dad died, June 18th, 1999, recreated by me. I'm April Streeter, and this is The Bell. The clingling of the bell startles her from a dream of doors and keys. Her heart slangs in her chest. She throws her legs over the side of the bed. Her feet touch shaggy carpet. She tries to slow her breath and listen. The bedroom window faces west, yet the dark seen through its panes has already taken on a quality of change. Two instincts grip her. The first, to leap up, trundle down the narrow stairwell. Carefully, though, as caregiver, she mustn't fall or injure herself and charge through the sick room door. The second, equally strong urge is to sit still, gather herself to herself, and perhaps even slip down into still warm bedding. She listens to her house, an 1840s farmstead never truly silent, imagining her hearing traveling to its four corners, checking entrances and exits for sounds of intrusion. There are none. Yet she senses some shift, as if a cold draft had gone in or out an open window. She pads to the stairs and down, silent as a cat. Outside the oak door to the downstairs bedroom, her hand hovers. Then she turns the knob and pushes. The old door squeaks a woody protest. Frustration rising, heart thumping, she swivels the porcelain knob again and rams her entire body into the door. It gives way, and she is forcefully, nearly face-first, propelled to the foot of her husband's hospital bed. She bustled in and out of the room a hundred times the day and evening previous. Yet now, it's as if she's opened a long-shut attic. And in the low light, her husband's body is a startling hulk under the white sheet. She glances to the bell, seemingly untouched on the bedside table, and then to his big hand hanging outside the covers. She clutches it. The palm is warm, but the fingers are cooling, almost cold. Not just her heart, but her whole chest and belly clutches into a painful spasm. Her hand cups his cheek, caresses curly post-chemo hair above his ear. Tears well, 
and a single sob surges out of her. She drops her head to his chest. The ravaged lungs beneath the skin are still. Perhaps a minute passes. She straightens, turns from the room into her kitchen. Dawn is rising through its east-facing windows. He is gone, she writes, at the bottom of yesterday's to-do list. Then she puts the pencil down. We'd like to welcome back Baker Dan. Hola, Baker Dan. Hola, Benito Itavita. Thanks for calling me back to share an experience of Pan de Muerto with you. Cannot wait. Bread of the dead. We decided we needed to have something a little more traditional day of the dead to go with our soup for the spirits. Wonderful. So what are you doing here? You're already at it. We've gone ahead and measured out all the ingredients. I'm going to start by proving the yeast, and that should speed along the fermentation process and then the rise. We're going to start by taking our cold liquids, quarter cup milk, quarter cup water, and we're putting them on the stovetop. I'm going to heat that up, and we're going to add the four tablespoons unsalted butter at room temperature. And I'm going to add a little sugar, two tablespoons, because you need the yeast to have something to eat. I've warmed the mixing bowl in the oven and I'm going to put it in the bowl and then I'm going to make sure it's not higher than 110 degrees prior to adding the yeast because over 110 you do really risk killing the yeast. And if you kill the yeast it won't rise? Exactly. So we're going to let that cool a little bit. I can go ahead and squeeze the orange for the glazing and put the rind that I have grated off the orange into juice. If you let citrus dry out, you get less flavor and it becomes crunchy. And that's set up for later. And then I'm gonna start to activate the yeast. One packet. While that yeast is fermenting, I have a teaspoon and a half of anise seed. I'm mildly grinding the aniseed in a mortar and pestle to release more of the flavor. You could use aniseed powder, but I like having a little bit of the texture of the seed and I like the way it looks in the bread. Yeah, so I'm taking all the dry ingredients, the aniseed, a quarter cup of sugar, teaspoon of salt, the flour, three cups unbleached all-purpose flour, and I'm whisking it together in a small bowl. And I'll use this to add to the fermented yeast, water, and milk. A beautiful start to this yeast. It's all foamy and creamy looking on top. And so I know I'm ready to go. I'm adding the four tablespoons of butter to the warm liquid. And then I'm going to add about a half a cup of my flour mixture and two room temperature eggs. Gently whisk this all together to create a loose dough, melting that butter down. You can see how that butter's already liquefying. That's exactly what I wanted, because if you use cold eggs and butter, you may stall that fermenting process, which is just frustrating. I'm gonna add one tablespoon of orange extract. So I'm just finishing off adding the dry ingredients, scraping it down as I was mixing it, to turn out dough onto the countertop with a little bit of that flour mixture left over, and I'm gonna knead it to create the gluten strands and also form the elasticity, which sweetbread especially can be known for. And I'll probably do this for about five to seven minutes. 
Good. So I'm kneading and it starts to get sticky on my hands again, which is great. It means I can add a little bit more flour. You really want a slightly tacky, elastic consistency. As long as it's holding together and when you're kneading, it shouldn't tear. It should stretch quite a bit. Those gluten strands need to be fully developed through this process. Look at that beautiful mound of dough. Yes, we finished with the kneading. I'm taking a metal mixing bowl and I'm slightly greasing it. You could use oil, butter. So I'm just greasing it lightly and then I'm gonna roll the dough uh, through. All the surfaces have a little bit of butter on them. You can cover it with saran wrap, moist towel. So I'm gonna quickly cover it. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna stick it in the oven, but I'm adding a tray of just boiled water to the bottom of it. So I'm creating a proving drawer to maintain moisture. And that should help keep this process moving along. And because we've now entered our fall weather, room temperature probably isn't gonna do it or it would take quite a few hours to double in size. And we've got the hot tea kettle boiling. So we're gonna put a small pan on the lower shelf of the oven. The boiling water. Added about three, four cups of boiling water. Above it, we're gonna add the metal bowl that's covered. And we're just gonna close it. We're gonna set a timer for 45 minutes. There we go. Hopefully it'll have doubled in size by then and we'll be ready to form our breads. All right, so we've let this rise in the oven. We're gonna check in and see how it's doing. When I open the door, it's still warm from that water bath. I'll do a quick peek. And in fact, wow. definitely grew to twice the size. So now we're gonna move over to our work surface and then we're ready to punch down and form our loaves. From the bowl, it's warm and silky. And we're just gonna pat it down to reduce some of the air in it. So I'm gonna divide it in two. And you could just bake this as one and make a large loaf, or you could make a ton of little rolls. We're gonna get to make one corpse maybe, right? Yes, I think we can. Okay. Just using a little pastry knife, cut the dough in two. And I'm gonna set one part aside and work with the other one. First, I'm gonna form the more traditional round. Before I form it, I do have to cut off about a fifth of the dough that will be used to make the tears. Larger portion, we're just gonna make into a nice round. About the size of a softball? Yeah. About a fifth portion of the dough. I created a tube with it, rolling it on the countertop surface by separating three fingers and running it across the dough. Creating four bones or the teardrops strung together by a thin strand of the dough. And then you drape them across the that? bread. Wow. When you place those teardrops or bones on the loaf and the round circle in the middle to finish the top, make sure you press them somewhat firmly. My guess is when that's done, it'll probably be about six to seven inches. And we're going to go with a larger uh, person. Here comes the corpse. And I'm doing it directly on the baking sheet, which I've lightly floured. Because you have sugar in this dough, there is the chance that it will stick. And I'm going to just work with the dough to create a neck so we have a somewhat distinct head. And this dough is going to rise again. So 
kind of have to make things a bit extreme for them to show up in the final version. And I'm going to take my knife to create arms. And then at the bottom, I will create my legs. Dan, you've outdone yourself. Yeah, how long do you proof this for? I'm going to put the whole pan in a large plastic bag, put it in a warm place for about 20 minutes, and let it rise. The bread is going to rest in peace. Yeah. It's before we put it in the oven. <laughs> so we're done with our second rise. Everything has puffed up nicely. We're going to brush the breads with milk so that they get a nice golden brown color as they bake. We're ready to pop it in the oven at 350 degrees. This will bake between 20 and 30 minutes. All right, oven is baking our bread away. But the glaze is on a little pot on the stove. It is the squeezed orange juice, rind from the orange, and then a quarter cup of sugar. So we're going to bring it to a boil and simmer for about three minutes, and that'll help it coagulate so it will be runny, but it will stiffen on the dough. Oh, we can hear it boiling. Yep. So once we really see that start off, we're going to lower it so we're just simmering. I can smell it. Can you smell it? Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've been in the oven 25 minutes, and these we have a nice hollow tap. They're nice and golden brown. As soon as they cool for a couple of minutes and our glazing is ready, we'll decorate it. Well, you want it to be able to drool a little bit but not run all off. You can tell by cooking it down, removing it, seeing how it handles once it's a little cooled. Prepared the glaze, I'm brushing it on and now while it's still hot, I'm gonna sprinkle on some sugar so it catches and you have to move really quickly as I did not. <laughs> to dust it with granulated sugar gives it that three-dimensional sparkle. Sparkle. People use <laughs> colored sugars, all kinds of things. It's really pretty. I like how the orange glaze is still really orangey and you can see some of the bits of zest in it. It came out beautifully, but you want to eat this bread right away. Put one on the altar and we can eat one. Pan de muerto indeed. In. So we cut down the center of the bread and it's still warm and smelling delicious. Oh. It's just like a little taste of heaven. This is a great bread. It's full in flavor with anise, with orange, and it tears. The best part of this bread is that inside. It's so light and fluffy. But I love the sweetness of the outside. I do too. This is often served with hot chocolate, so talk about sweet and decadent. Mm. Wow, Baker Dan, you killed it. Muchas gracias, Baker Danielle. De nada. This supple bread is so tasty. It's something that you can definitely make for Day of the Dead, but you can also make it any time of year, and it will be a treat for your whole family, those with us and the dearly departed. Perfecto. If you'd like the recipe, go to our blog, kboo.fm forward slash peace, love, and soup. We'll have all of the instructions and photos there for you. Fantastico. Hi, this is David Ciminello. In 1999, my mother passed of a cerebral hemorrhage in her sleep. Within a day or two, she found a clever way to visit me. This is a final eulogy for Shirley B. The first one came to me the day after she died. I found it on the ground, outside, dead, wind-blown with desert dirt and dust, a bit too dry, tiny, and round, 
still black dots on orange, bright paper-thin wings, still sound. The next one showed up while I climbed the steps of a foreign church. It landed on my forearm, like one of her silver Monopoly charms, and stayed with me almost until the end of Mass. Then it flew up to a window of ribboning stained glass. Over the next several weeks, they appeared at the oddest of times, one, sometimes two or three, while sipping her favorite homemade lemon ginger tea, while teaching my third grade students their ABCs, while sitting on the toilet, just killing time, or while comforting myself with silly nursery rhymes, while walking off the blues, while trying not to cry. Don't worry, their winged flutterings seem to say. It'll all be all right. Over a dozen showed up the week my father introduced me to his God-fearing, proudly racist second wife. Talk about dead mother angel strife. They completely took over, swirling up to the ceilings, searching for sensible sky, marching across the rug for a final hug. They circled around my bed and gave me a tender kiss upon the head, a sweet goodbye. Ladybugs, they taught me how to grieve. Ladybugs taught me how to fly. My name is Cindy Spade. My husband passed away six months ago, and I wrote this piece called The New Normal. Do you ever wonder how the abnormal becomes the normal? Our journey began years before, chasing an illness that couldn't be found, having feelings and signs that something wasn't normal. My husband, Steve Bell, the witty, positive, avid bicyclist, was diagnosed 18 months ago. We were told that it was in a stomach area, that there was no cure. We digested the news for two months before we shared it with our daughter and friends. Bryn turned 10, and two days later, her daddy told her. We would fight it, and we should stay hopeful and continue with our lives, like they were. His will to live so incredibly strong, his courage to face whatever came at him, made us all stronger. We found ourselves in a new routine. Treatment, recovery, treatment, recovery. Our new normal was working for us, even to the point that at times we forgot. Steve was able to go on his regular bike rides. Being on the trail was his happy place, and going to work made him feel productive and alive. Then things changed. Problems associated with treatment. I went home to explain to Bren that Daddy was okay, and new realities needed to be faced. A tube coming straight out of his back, emptied into a bag, that he wore tied to his thigh. This new appendage required maintenance. We adjusted once again. He couldn't ride anymore, so we started hiking to keep him outside, active, doing regular things. It moved into his bones, a marker of different times ahead. He still had the occasional witty remark or joke and made a smile. To Bryn, I told the hard truth. Without doubt, time was limited with him and that we would be okay. Steve left us to move to a place of no more pain. 
our hearts ache every day. We talk about them every day. We go to school, walk the dog, do our homework. We're back to adjusting to our new normal. Thank you for sharing this with us and for allowing yourself to be vulnerable. I keep telling myself it's, it's got to help just to feel. I nursed my father before he passed 10 years ago, and then we had his memorial on Father's Day. So there's that sisterhood of going through that process with somebody. You, you know. <laughs> yeah. We have a really hard time processing death. We do. We're not going to be here forever. Understanding that that's inevitable and hard, but we have to die. Completely. And when we're thinking of the Day of the Dead, where they have this celebration, joy, and homage, normalizing death. As a culture here in the U.S., you know, we don't have that deep-seated understanding that death is a part of our normal everyday existence. You know, there's cultures where they celebrate death as a birth in unison with one another, and it should be celebrated and cherished. You've been listening to Peace, Love, and Soup. Audio nourishment for both the heart and mind. With Tave Fache Drake and Brian Delaney. We sincerely hope this supersize episode has fed your spirit. Our hearts go out to all those who have been affected by recent tragedy, either natural or man-made. In Mexico, the U.S., and beyond. We leave you with two quotes that particularly inspire us this month. Mourn the dead, fight like hell for the living. And I'm just a free spirit with a wild heart and an open road ahead. Next month, episode 11, we're getting back to nature. Join us for Wild Mushrooms. Thank you again to today's musicians, Sabila. Check them out on Facebook, as well as on Bandcamp, and at Sabila Band on Instagram. Also, guitarist Fabio Lorena, or Fabi, is the founder of She Shreds Magazine, a publication devoted to female musicians, particularly those playing guitar. For more information about this month's episode, along with links, photos, and recipes, please visit us at kboo.fm forward slash peace, love, and soup, as well as Peace, Love, and Soup on Facebook. You can listen to other episodes there, as well as on SoundCloud.